You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Thank you, Clay, choir, and praise team. Indeed, a very glorious truth. Amen? When Pastor Jason asked me about uh, filling in this morning, about filling the pulpit this morning, uh, he suggested that I might want to speak on the topic of dis- discipleship. I hope that uh, the relevance of that to Mother's Day will, will be apparent. His moms play a, a very central part in, in establishing a lifelong pattern of discipleship in the lives of their children. So this morning we're going to be looking at a very pivotal passage from the book of Mark in which Jesus expounds the basics of discipleship to his very first disciples. I hope you'll turn with me in Mark chapter 8 as we look together beginning with verse 27 this morning. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Father, it is you that we need to see, that we need to hear from this morning. So we pray, coming together right now before you, acknowledging our need and asking you, Lord, that you would would open your word up to us, that you would speak even through me, and that, God, you would use your word to, to shape, to mold, to transform our hearts, to make us the people that you've called us to be that it would be for our good and for your glory, and that, God, all would see and know that you are God. For it's in Christ's name that we pray this morning. Amen. At at this point, Jesus has been with the twelve teaching, teaching them, performing miracles, even casting out demons and raising the dead for a period of three years. His ministry is nearly complete, and he is on his way to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, beaten, suffered, crucified, 
and die before going to the grave. It's crucial for these men, if they are going to continue to, to follow after Jesus, to be faithful to Him, that they have certainty and be resolved about who Jesus is. So Jesus raises this question of faith, and He does so in two parts. First, He asks them, who do people say that I am? To which they responded, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And while these may sound like nice answers, they, quite, they fall quite short. Though they may be intended as compliments, they were really anything but. For the Gospels clearly portray Jesus as so much more than that, as having divine authority and power, and even more so having the divine nature. Mark's Gospel allows no room to think of Jesus as merely a good man or even a prophetic man. He's no less than God incarnate. So Jesus presses them further, asking the, the more important question, the question that we all need to wrestle with, and will in some way, but who do you say that I am? In asking the question this way, Jesus is calling them to distinguish themselves from the crowds. For up to this point, they've had a lot more in common with the people than with Jesus. If they were going to continue with Him, to, if the, they were going to have to, to make the move from being merely spectators to participants. They're going to have to decide for themselves, who is this man? And am I going to follow him on the way? This is essentially what it means to have faith. It's to actively follow Jesus, trusting him to lead your life in the way, in the pattern that he has established for us. It's not something that's stagnant, but moving, developing. It's not easy, but hard. And it begins with answering the question, who is Jesus? Who do you believe him to be? And Peter answers him with what is commonly known as the, the great confession. Because it's this, <clears throat> listen to his answer. He says very simply, you are the Christ. Peter's answer is, is referred to as a great confession because it's the starting place for discipleship. Discipleship begins with knowing rightly who Jesus is. Knowing and understanding the truth of who Jesus is, is is not enough. It has to be believed that He lived. Even that He was. A, it's not enough to believe that He lived or that was He was a great historical figure. It's not sufficient to perceive Him as a great man, as a teacher. So Peter was right when he said that He's the Christ. To understand the significance of Peter's answer, we must be reminded that Christ isn't just part of Jesus' name. Rather, it's a title. It's an indication that Jesus is the Christ. Not a Christ, but the Christ, the promised one from Genesis 3 who would come as a descendant of the woman and crush the head of the serpent. The one prophesied about throughout the Old Testament the one who was promised to come and save his people, God's people, from our sin. You see, we can't just be familiar with these truths and call ourselves a disciple. 
Faith is, is dependent upon what can be known about God. But it's also something more, considerably more than knowing the facts and information about God. Faith involves agreement with what can be known. In this way, faith is not just acknowledging certain things are true, but agreeing with those implications in your own life and living accordingly. That's what Peter is, is doing when he confesses Jesus is the Christ. He's identifying with Jesus as his God, as his Lord, as his master. <clears throat> and this is the, the, the essentials of saving faith in Christ. So I ask you this morning, does that describe your relationship with Christ? Is that characteristic of how you relate to Him, how you interact with Him? Have you come to a place of decision where you've confessed Jesus as the Christ and surrendered yourself to following Him obediently in faith? You have no right to call yourself a Christian and no real comfort from the Scripture if you've done anything less than this. For discipleship starts with knowing Jesus is the Christ. But discipleship also continues with, with following Jesus. In fact, discipleship requires us to follow Jesus. That's the central thrust or emphasis of this passage as we see so clearly in verse 34. And calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He said to them, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That certainly seems straightforward, doesn't it? That coming after Jesus would naturally mean that we are the ones who follow him. Yet that is the very place where we find ourselves so often going astray, isn't it? Look with me at verse 31 and, and you'll see very plainly how easily this happens, how quickly it happens to us. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And then Mark adds this, this, this little phrase. And he said this plainly and clearly. It's not that Peter isn't understanding what he said. It's that Peter has understood very clearly what Jesus has said and means. And yet, just moments after he has confessed Jesus as the Christ, he's lost all thoughts of following Jesus, and he begins to assert himself. Get the scene in your mind, how he would be arrested, suffer, and die, and after three days he would rise from the, from the grave. This is why Jesus had come to atone for our sin, that men might be freed from sin and death. But rather than hearing and receiving what Jesus had to say, Peter responded by taking Jesus aside and rebuking him. To grasp the severity of Peter's words to Jesus, how, how Peter actually spoke to him, it helps to understand that the word used to describe Peter's rebuke is the same word that's used in, earlier in the book when Jesus is rebuking demons and commanding them to come out of people. Peter has perceived Jesus' thinking as something evil. Peter, having just confessed Jesus as the promised one of God, has already forgotten his place as a follower. Rather than following 
He's grasping now at being the leader. And so I'd ask, is this not something we can all relate to? Who among us hasn't at some point gone to Jesus telling him what we need him to do in order to, in order to remedy our problems? Any of us not guilty of this? Rather than crying to him in faith, expressing our need and trusting him to meet, meet it as he sees fit, we go to him with our solutions, expecting him to do as we say. With that in mind, it's critically important that we see how Jesus responds to Peter's grasping and likewise to our own. Look with me in verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. Jesus wasted absolutely no time in helping Peter return his, to his rightful place as he rebukes him. Maybe if you've heard that well this morning, you're asking the question, why was it Jesus was so sharp with Peter? Was that necessary? The words, get behind me, Satan? Well, to answer that question, we need to remember that there are only really two options in who we are going to follow. Either we'll follow the ways of Jesus or we'll follow the ways of Satan. There's no neutrality. There's no third way. We'll either follow after Christ or we will follow in the course of Satan. Without even realizing it, Peter has resisted the way of Jesus, the way of humility and obedience, and encouraged Jesus to take the way of Satan, the way of pride and self-exaltation. For Peter had effectively said to Jesus, there is no reason for you to suffer and die. You're better than that, Jesus. Just assert your power and everything will work out okay. Isn't that the pattern of the world that we live in? So Jesus went on to say to, to Peter, you're setting your mind on the things of God. Excuse me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God. That little word makes a big difference, doesn't it? But on the things of man. And this is what you and I do each time. We, we pursue our own way. That we do our own thing. This is, this is why a call to follow Jesus is also a calling to learn Jesus' ways. This doesn't come intuitively to us. So being a student, a learner, is foundational to what it means to being a disciple. Key to living and walking in the ways of Jesus is learning His ways. And how do we do that? But through His Word. This is why it, the Word must be central in the life of the church in order for us to be a faithful people. Hear the words of the psalmist in Psalms 119, beginning with verse 9. How can a young man, or for that matter an old man, or a woman, keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare 
all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. Fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Allow me this morning to share just some very practical ways for learning the ways of God through His Word. Begins with gathering as we have this morning with the church for the preaching of God's Word. I understand that that people can, can listen to sermons and services online and that this can be a great supplement to your spiritual life. In fact, I would even commend doing that. But it's crucial that we, we not confuse that with with watching or listening to a service online with the value of being among God's people gathered together under the preaching of God's Word. This is central to the life of the church. It always has been central to God's people. Secondly, reading the Word of God. You got to read it regularly. You got to read it systematically. By the way, there's, there's a variety of reading plans on our church's website right under the, the resource tab if you don't have a plan for reading the Bible regularly and systematically. It's a, a great help to you in those arenas. And finally, you need to read it attentively. You know, it's not enough to, to sit down and, and flip through the pages as we sometimes do with things wondering afterwards what we've even read. We need to give our, our thought, our attention, our concentration to it. And yes, that takes energy. It takes effort. Thirdly, I'd suggest memorizing Scripture. Up front, I would just acknowledge to you, I understand that's not easy. I find it getting harder every year. But my goodness, how profitable it is. Powerfully reshaping the patterns of, <clears throat> of worldly carnal thinking and bringing the whole of our minds into conformity with the Word of God with Jesus' ways. <clears throat> Even the process of just laboring at the work of memorizing Scripture plays a valuable role in reshaping our thinking. Fourthly, I would suggest meditating on God's Word. It's not something we tend to talk a lot about these days, but I would describe it to you this way. It's a lot like stewing on something. You ever stewed on something in your mind? You sit and dwell on it and think about it? A lot of times when we do that, we get a little agitated with it. It's not quite the idea here. We let it soak into our minds. We kind of embrace ourselves in it. And after a while, what you're stewing on starts to soak into you, affecting your mood, your attitude, shaping your thinking. Soon it begins to permeate every facet of your life. Friends, this is what we're after. And being a disciple is that God's Word would shape and inform every aspect of our lives. And finally, I would suggest praying God's Word. That's why we've made the little books, Praying God's Word, available to you these last few weeks. There's still some available built out front in, in the room off to my left. It's to help you think about praying for, for God's Word. We need nothing less if we're to be faithful disciples than the help and work of God's Holy Spirit within us. If we are to be true and faithful disciples... And when we pray, asking that the things God has taught and commanded through His Word be true of us, we can be confident He hears us and answers our prayers. 
Consider with me Psalms 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me, know, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in the truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. Faithfully following Jesus is a calling to learn His ways. But it doesn't stop there. It continues with a calling to live for Jesus. Jesus teaches us plainly what this means. One passage that would, would illustrate this very concisely is in John 14, 15. If you love me, He says, you will keep my commandments. What commandments? Jesus answers that question in Matthew 28, 20 when He describes being a disciple as, as obeying all that is taught in His Word. To help us get a feel for, for what is at play in this, let's consider a, a passage briefly from Ephesians 4. I'll begin with verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their mind, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the, their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him. Notice that Paul is drawing a, a distinction between the church and the world. That he's making a distinction between those who follow Christ and those who don't. The unbeliever, Paul says, is calloused and gives themselves to sensuality, to pleasure, to what pleases them. Greedy, not just for money, but to practice all kinds of impurity. That is not the way you've learned Christ. If indeed you have learned Him at all. Don't miss the force of what Paul is saying to us. In other words, if your life is not distinct, distinct from the world in some very specific ways, you may not really know Christ at all. So listen to how Paul touches on every facet of life as he continues. Issues of integrity, purity, our work ethic. Listen for those things and more. As I continue with verse 22, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on this new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Rather, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Are we not all challenged as we read through passages like these? Quickened and convicted? You know, as we, as we read these passages, as we, we, we start to deal with those, we're going to face a very serious, weighty temptation. A temptation to soften them. To water them down. To imagine in our minds allowances for our disobedience. Pretending that we can still be a follower of Christ despite living according to our own desires. Which is why he concluded a, a similar passage from Galatians 5 saying, I warn you, as I warn you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Friends, feel the weight of that. Paul is not merely scolding us, but he's exhorting us to, to a life of truly following after Jesus. We must not make excuses for our sins, neither in our own lives, nor in the lives of one another. Instead, let us pursue lives of righteousness and holiness, as Paul lays out for us in the remainder of that passage. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with His passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You know, such a life is, is not without effort and exhortation. But we're not left merely to our own efforts to pursue this, to achieve this. Rather, God doesn't leave us to ourselves as His children. He offers us this assurance in John 14. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. What a strong encouragement to know that the Spirit of Christ is with you as a believer. That he's, indeed, He's not just with you, but in you to help you. Giving you the will and desire to obey Christ if indeed you love Him. So we look to Him in faith as we fight against our sins, as we confess our sin and pursue holiness and godliness. You know, at this point, it should be obvious that a call to live for Christ is no less than a calling to deny ourselves and die. It's not possible to live for Christ and at the same time live to, for our own agenda, our own ambitions. Either we will love one and hate the other. As Jesus said, no one can pursue two masters. Not even when one of them is ourself. Paul seems to have summarized this truth in Galatians 2.20. A passage that will be familiar to many of you. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The truth is, following Jesus is not terribly complicated. But neither is it easy. It's not ever comfortable to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves. 
It's always with some degree of pain and angst. There's no fun way to do that, is there? Nor are there any shortcuts. We'll be confronted with this call to deny and die to ourselves over and over and over again. Steve Lawson writes, following Christ will cost us much. It will cost us our old way of life, forfeiting our past sins, some of which we've grown very fond of. It will cost us a life of ease and living for this world. It will cost us old habits and even old associations. It will cost us following our own, own agenda for how we think our lives should look and work. It will cost us our time and treasure to spread the gospel message. It will cost us suffering for being identified with Jesus. It will cost us varying degrees of opposition and persecution from the world. And true enough, it may even cost us our lives. This leads us to ask the question, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone deny himself and take up his cross to follow Jesus? Isn't that at some point rolls through all of our minds? Is this kind of commitment really worth it? Why would any sane person want to do this? You know, it's, it's as if Jesus anticipated that question. So he continues, listen carefully to how he responds. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says you can save your life temporarily while losing it eternally. You can choose to grasp at this life in an effort to hang on to it, to keep control of it, to live it on your own terms, cherishing your sin, but it will most certainly cost you your soul. What profit will that bring to you in the end? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? and yet forfeit his soul. Is that really a good bargain? Is that really a sound investment? Jesus continues, what would you exchange for your soul if you had all the money in the world, all the resources and all the power in the world? Would that be enough to buy your own soul? What is of equal value to your soul, especially in light of the fact that this world and everything in it is passing away. And what good will that do at the coming judgment? When Christ will come from heaven with His holy angels in flaming fire to punish those who refuse to obey His gospel, would you risk your soul in light of such certainty? Consider how valuable your soul really is. So valuable that God sent His Son to be a sacrifice, to purchase your soul, to redeem you. 
Jesus came to give you his life as a ransom for many. And now he says, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. A commitment to Jesus is worth everything because of who he is and because of what he has done. And Jesus' call still goes out today. Who do you say that he is? Not just with your words, but with your life. Do you confess him as Messiah and Savior? For to do so is also to confess him as Lord. Those who confess and know him are those who commit to follow him. Is that you? Who do you say that he is? As you've heard from the scripture this morning, following Jesus really is a journey that comes at a high price. This decision requires complete surrender of all that you are and all that you have. It requires the submission of our wills to His will as we come under His Lordship. Following Him requires sacrifice at times, even suffering for Him. And yet that is the call. Clay's going to come and lead us in a hymn in a moment. The name of that hymn is, I Surrender All. If you've heard that call, I want to urge you to answer, to call out on Him who is the Christ, the Christ, and ask Him to save you. And if you've done that this morning, I'd invite you to come and respond during this time of, of response as this song that we sing and to, to share that. Allow Pastor Jason or myself to pray with you. But again, I'd urge you, Call on Him. Ask Him to work in your life as we sing together. Play. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.